This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Francesco Leone. Francesco is the founder and CEO of GoEye Strategy. Previously, Francesco served as the CMO of Pedal and the VP of Global Categories and Operations for Arla Foods. He also held top marketing positions for Coca-Cola, Starbucks, and Colgate. In this interview, Francesco talks about how to successfully execute an international marketing strategy, how to drive innovation, and some lessons learned from marketing cheese. It's a really great interview. A big thanks to Francesco for coming on. So without further ado, here's our interview with Francesco Leone, founder and CEO of GoEye Strategy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And in studio, Francesco, how's it going? Good. Thank you so much. Yeah, fellow East Bay guy, which I appreciate, coming in from Moraga. So uh, it's, a, it's a long way to Palo Alto. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a long way, but uh, not East Bay. I'm more East. I'm from Italy originally, so that was farther East. If no, no, that's East. That's yeah. far East. Um, we are going to get into uh, a bunch of stuff from your background. We're going to talk about the transnational marketing. You've worked at a lot of international companies. Uh, sometimes on the show, we don't have as many folks who have worked in international companies. So really excited to talk about that. But first, how did you get into marketing? I got into marketing actually when I was um, I was in Rome as a student. And um, one of the things that caught my attention was always the world of business and multinational business. So it's kind of, you know, I was uh, intrigued by all this uh, consumer goods company, big companies, and discovering more, you know, going into when I was in university. And again, university in Italy is more academic, more theoretical, so you don't have really marketing. So it was more economics and whatever. I got intrigued by a lot of those companies being driven by those, uh, by marketing. And I looked at, um, you know, I started talking, you know, I was part of a member of a youth student association, international student association in business, and started learning more about some of those companies and, and businesses and look at the marketeer as a central role. And marketing being, uh, and I know there's some differences, and maybe we talk about later in technology and other industry, but marketing being really kind of more a way of doing business based on demand, on consumers, and almost the marketeer being a route to general management, to international kind of business uh, um, career, and uh, being almost, I would call it like in, in some consumer goods, the renaissance, renaissance man of, yeah, totally. of business because it's exposed to everything. And and that's how I got in. And then after I finished, you know, when I was the end of uh, my university in Italy, I did an internship in technology at Microsoft in Seattle, which was my first uh, uh, thing in the US, uh, was a long-term internship on Excel and uh, on product marketing, basically international. And then after that, I decided, you know, I want to do, learn marketing in one of the academy company 
Uh, so look at Colgate, at Procter, you know, what, those were the companies that were at the time where, uh, you know, where you learn the basics of marketing from a consumer goods perspective. And then ended up being Colgate. I loved the, uh, the environment was, you know, not as big as a Procter & Gamble, for example. Mm-hmm. So you had much more space to do a lot of more entrepreneurial things. Um, it was more international in terms of culture. You know, the company obviously is based in New York. It has this, I think at the time, what maybe 60, 70% of the business was actually more international than US based. Uh, and so actually it had a you know good feel in terms of team and everything. So did an internship with the marketing director, which happened after to be the CEO of the company. And uh, and then entered, you know, and did the whole career from assistant brand manager and so on until, you know, moving international. Yeah. And, you know, doing stints at, places like Colgate, Coca-Cola, Starbucks, you know, learning from iconic, you know, brands. When you finally became CMO of uh, Roasting Plant Coffee, what was that like to go from, you know, all of these multinational, enormous brands to a company that might not be as well known everywhere in the world? Well, I think uh, when it's, uh, you know, Roasting Plant was more like a startup, really. So yeah. was really using all the experience that I had. And sometimes, obviously, because when you go in a company that is uh, that size in a market, obviously, you don't have all the access to data, to information that you would have in a big companies. And that's where your your intuition, which is based, obviously, still on data, on, on science, on everything you learn, actually come into play. Um, I think the difference, you know, for example, there's there was a difference in culture. I love Colgate because of our entrepreneurial part. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you go, for example, at Colgate or Procter or those companies, especially in some in some of the markets like detergents, is very linear, very functional. And I take sometimes the analogy between Colgate and a Coke, for instance, that in Colgate is like you learn to uh, I don't know if you are a plane, if you're a pilot, you learn a Piper, a small you know small engine plane, whatever. And when you move into a Coke, you work on a space shuttle or something like that. Mm-hmm. Because suddenly you don't have any more that linear relation, functional benefit, you know, emotional benefit, like in a detergent, which is very, very logical. Suddenly you have to deal with uh, much more different dimensions in marking, you know, a Coke that has, uh, if it has more bubble than Pepsi, that's not a claim. You have to really understand the emotional part and understanding all the aspects of the brand. You work as well on multiple targets. So all those kind of things obviously uh, are different uh, when you move from one to the other one. And then in roasting plant, obviously, you go in a startup. This allows you to understand, you know, what kind of set of skills and understanding better for that market, what kind of information you take. And sometimes you understand both the functional and emotional part of uh, that brand or their business. And the other thing, obviously, you learn in, in those companies, I think, that I found very useful. And sometimes I haven't found in in, uh, in other business, for example, when marketing is more is more defined as some, you know, that does advertising, does posters, ads, it's like the creative guy, as opposed to the person that manages the business, which is oriented toward customers or con- consumers. And as such, you know, then you have as well, you know, obviously you do ads and you, you, you connect with them, but you have the whole business as well to manage from financials to value chain because everything as well play into it. That when we went into a roasting plant, you have that kind of uh, view and experience, which allows you to be as well, not only the CMO marketing guy, but as well, learn as well how to make presentation, you know, your presentation to investors, yep. manage the business, understand all the other aspects that feeds into marketing. Is that supply chain working well? Is that uh, aspect, are we making enough money? So a lot of other things that uh, make you more general manager than uh, just a marketeer, like a technical function. I want to get into some of the consumer goods differences with transnational. You know, you've worked for obviously companies like, you know, Coke and Starbucks, and we'll get into the Arla Foods. 
but you have these companies that have products that the packaging could be different, the positioning could be different. Um, how do you keep brand consistency, but also serve you know local markets, especially in a place like Europe where there's so many cultures, so many di- so many dialects, so many languages, um, so many different things going on that you need to be able to market. I know I've been to the the Coke factory in Atlanta and tried all of like the multinational yeah. flavors. And there's some right. of them that you're like, oh man, I can't believe like this flavor is so weird. I've never had anything like this. Like what was that like to to work at those type of companies where you're truly, you have to position different markets completely differently? Yeah, sometimes it's, um, it's sometimes you, fi- you find uh, uh, most of the global brands you find out there, I think mostly uh, they're not designed globally and centrally. Mm-hmm. They're normally start in a market, and I think that's the best way because when you design it globally, you be, you be, you basically base yourself on a theoretical consumer that doesn't exist, and you try to uh, make a lot of compromise. And sometimes I've I've, been, I've seen a lot of failures in that kind of thing. That's maybe after we can talk about global CMO, global structure versus uh, local structure. So sometimes you have brands that start in a, in a, in a market and then get adopted, you know, by other markets because they found the same segment. And sometimes, obviously, by, you know, if there is no problem with the name or the communication, which may be culturally sensitive, sometimes it may happen very well that uh, I would say 80, 90% of that brand goes travel because it travels to a similar type of consumer that exists in other countries. Um, so sometimes it's like almost, uh, I would say, how you call it, not organic, but it's like a, a development that starts from a market and that get expanded. So. You, you don't start with the thinking, how can I make a brand that works everywhere with the same logo? You start with a brand that is successful in a market and a segment, and then after finds its own segment or similar segment in other markets. Uh, not all of brands do that, but you know, if you look at the way some of the global brands came to life, that was uh, that was mainly uh, basically it. Sometimes it happens as well that you may find yourself with your brand that has a meaning in one country and is slightly different, still successful, still with the same logo and whatever in, in, another, in another market, but for slightly different reasons. I think that's where you look as well when you do a startup or a new product, you think, you know, you have all the things aligned, you know, in terms of consumer insights and what the positioning, and then you find out that maybe the consumer takes it, but takes it with a different twist. And so then you adapt. And sometimes it happens as well international. Some, you know, all the brands mean all the time the same. Even a Coke, we had some slight differences on how the brand was perceived. Although it was the same logo, the same color, the same kind of sometime uh, type of communication, but the perception, the way a consumer looked at it or whatever was a slightly different in different markets. Yeah. Um, but that didn't influence, obviously, you didn't have to make dramatic change. So tell me a little bit about your role at, at Arla Foods, what was like the size of the company? Obviously, it's a multinational company um, headquartered in Denmark, right? Yeah. Um, what, what were you working on there and uh, what was kind of the, the scope of the challenge? So there was a company was very different, was a co-op. It is a co-op, actually. It's a, one of the biggest uh, co-op in, in, dairy, in the dairy industry. Uh, so I think it's number six or seven in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it had... Uh, it was based in Denmark, and it's a global uh, in terms of it goes everything dairy, B2B and B2C. And I was uh, responsible for specialty cheese, which is very good because as an Italian lover yeah. of good food, I cooked myself. That was almost like a dream from that kind of personal passion. Oh, man. I mean, we have we have a channel on uh, uh, in our mission Slack that's just dedicated to cheese because uh, we, yeah. we love cheese so much. Yeah. 
And that was actually a surprise for me because, I mean, normally, I mean, as an Italian, normally I would buy, I would eat cheese, Italian, French, whatever, Spanish, and, and actually Scandinavian had very good cheese. And we made some acquisitions or whatever. So it was a very interesting, uh, so I was responsible for that business. And uh, we had as well a challenge, which was how do you create, how do you transfer one of the branded business was uh, named with an Italian name, yeah. had been bought by the company back in 2007 and hadn't you know, generated the growth they expected. So the challenge is how do you make that brand global? And mm-hmm. part of it is because as well into the world of dairy and in the world of Cobb where my, my, making money is is important, like you know, in a in a Coke or in a Shell, a normal company. But actually, it's more important that you use actually the milk of the of the farmers. Mm-hmm. So the business objectives and everything is a bit different. Oh, because it's a co-op. It's a co-op. Sorry, yeah, my sometimes. Uh, well, no, no, yeah, yeah. no. I, I mean, but I'm saying because it's a co-op, you there's like it's a different challenge. It's a different challenge as you manage a business because you are not only responsible for profits. So obviously you need a certain profitability to uh, fuel the company to mm-hmm. invest in everything. But there's as well another kind of objective which doesn't exist in a Coke or anything. You have to maximize the cost of goods because you want to give the maximum price, the best price to the farmers. To the farmers. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you have you have to deal with this kind of thing. And at the same time as well, another kind of challenge from a marketeer standpoint is that a co-op is function in order to, is basically accumulating production and selling as much they produce because mm-hmm. they want to get this milk out in the market. So uh, if you think of Coca-Cola, what you think first is where's the market, where's the opportunity, whatever, and then I ramp up production or I start, you know, whatever uh, business. But uh, there is like, you have the milk flowing yeah, yeah, and yeah. you have to find a way to say, oh, oops, what am I going to do with this milk? And obviously there are different levels of uh, how the milk produce value. International, you know, cheese, that's why I was coming, specialty cheese travels better than fresh milk. So a way to sell you know, product of the farmers in Australia or other things like that, uh, specialty cheese was the best uh, uh, way. And at the same time, it is as well the one that makes more money, although smaller. And uh, so that was like the business, obviously, was uh, was a business acquired, which has some international presence, but we were trying to make it much more global. So mm-hmm. that was that. And then the marketing challenge, which was there, was like how do you, the, the, the brand that they acquired was actually had an Italian name by, by chance. So how do you make, uh, how do you change the brand perception, not put it into whether it's Italian, whatever, uh, that is the game playing into the cheese business, uh, which is dangerous because you have the Italian cheese, the Spanish cheese, some of them not branded. They come from regions of uh, you know places so mm-hmm. if, at the end of the day they are like brands uh, so anytime you talk specialty cheese you don't want to be confused and so they had an Italian name and so how do we create a brand that uh, revolutionized becomes global in a market which are thousands of uh, small brand uh, regional whatever where Denmark and Scandinavia for that matter are not known to be the best cheese in the world mm-hmm. and uh, and then change find a completely different type of positioning for that and, and not and obviously get away from the name which we couldn't change which was an Italian name but we kind of tried to get away from uh, uh, focusing on the name whether it's Italian, French or whatever and create a completely different identity and in order to do that we kind of changed complete positioning completely the way we approached the, was approached the cheese business in, in uh, globally in which we worked on focus on the fact uh, on the origin of the company and the Danish culture which was reinventing mm-hmm. and recreating so the story was fascinating it was this guy that went into different countries and learned how to make cheese from the Italians the French and so on and brought it back to Denmark with a little twist yeah. so that was where our position at the time was creatively crafted so everything's 
focus back on, it's not about whether we are Italian, whether we are French or German, which is the game that uh, normally is played in that market. Forget about that. We create cheese that is creatively done cre- in yeah. a different way. Whether you are a chef, whether you're a person at home or whatever, you kind of subscribe to this idea. So we tried to shift the conversation from regional that was where we would have lost dramatically and where we're not relevant to something that was much more relevant and using as well the strength of where we were in a different way, as well as the history of the company. That's fascinating. That's really interesting. So, because I'm trying to think of like cheese that I, specialty cheese and, and things like that, that I that I look at the store and you always see product of France, you know, yeah. Healdsburg, you know, wherever, wherever it is, um, the locations. I mean, you see this obviously a lot with wine, with, you know, Bordeaux or whatever it yeah. is that there's different regions, but that's, re- that's an interesting way to look at it, that you take the region of where it's coming from and give it some spice by saying, Hey, we're looking at, you know, we have our, our a Danish spin on this, a little creativity. How did the market receive that? Market received very well. I mean, we grew actually at a certain point. We were we refocused as well. There was part of the strategy was global as well, but we were the fastest growing in the U.S. Oh, wow. uh, we started obviously we recon we we got much more relevant. There was a campaign we did as well. A lot of innovation in marketing, like creating as well our own stores that we promoted in different cities in New York, in uh, Stockholm, in uh, in Copenhagen, and. Uh, um, what was that? The other one in Holland and uh, close to Amsterdam, and then we created because I think we kind of used the the, the characteristic of cheese, which we discover actually by doing market research. Mm-hmm. That is uh, that is uh, making people very excited. You put a, a plate of specialty cheese and bread on the on a place in a focus group, and people all get excited. They start speaking. They start getting emotional. So we recreate a completely different type of store concept in which we could focus because we had a lot of obviously cheese and create an experience. For consumers and yeah. then we linked with social media with events and so it created like this kind of uh, uh, exponential kind of effect which was as well a completely different way of doing marketing in that kind of space yeah and especially to get out of what you you know when you go in a supermarket you find cheese all kind of accumulate in this kind of little space and you know with region so it's very difficult to get noticed if you're a brand there and it's a, it's a very tough environment it's a lot of price shopping it's like you know hey is yeah. this brie going to be cheaper than this brie like what's the n- tough exactly. to differentiate on and the- people sometimes are you know the more it gets sophisticated cheese a, a lot of similarity with wine you get people are intimidated. That's what I learned from Coke to cheese. Cheese is designed mostly, the, the way it's packaged and, and sized is very much dependent on the way it's produced. As opposed to a Coke, you think, and that's what I tried to bring Gosh, into the great. business. When you think Coke, you think a bottle or a can or whatever in function of the consumer uh, yep. experience. Cheese, if you look at it, it comes from the wheel. That's the way it produced, you know, for a thousand years, whatever. There was not much change and you cut it and then it appears there and people start getting a little bit afraid. So it smells, you know, do I put it in the refrigerator? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be something tastes good? Am I spending that much money? So there are a lot of barriers sometimes to entry. And we kind of, so that's the way that in order for us to be more relevant and as well to break those barriers, we tried to do, we, we actually did a lot of things that were completely new into the cheese uh, space, including this uh, store, which actually after led us to have a completely different space into major retailers because retailers in uh, Denmark and other places looked at what we were doing and said, oh, I want my little store within the store because I mm-hmm. like what you've done. So we started putting displays, our own branded real estate into big hypermarkets and supermarkets. That worked very well. 
That's really cool. And I, I could quite literally talk cheese all day and we might just keep going. Um, so I should have brought some. I know. I'm like, <laughs> there are some very I, good ones at my local market. <laughs> I know our producers yeah. are going to listen to this and be like, uh, could we get some, could we get some cheese? So I think it's really interesting that you talked about packaging and the utility because I think one of the things with something like Brie or like you look at Starbucks, you know, um, with coffee, um, you look at, you know, Coke, whatever it is, uh, back, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, a lot of these things that we just think are just have always been right. were yeah. that way. Yeah. Um, and I think especially young people don't realize like coffee wasn't a thing. Like it was just, you drank Folgers and that was it. Yeah, like, yeah, there, yeah. there was no like variety. Um, you know, like Napa Valley didn't have wine for a long time until it did. Um, you know, cheese, I think it was like, you didn't have this massive opportunity to have all these different types of cheeses. One of the things that, um, Whole Foods does that I always thought was really, or this Whole Foods where I used to live was they would have like the cheese, um, like ends or things like that. So basically just like super small package cheese yeah. where they would just wrap it up and you could kind of go in there if, you know, me and my girlfriend used to go on and just grab like two or three because they were just small little pieces. And we're like, oh man, I wish more cheese yeah, was, yeah. came in these little packages because then you can kind of like test and try different kinds. Um, when you're marketing change like that, did you think about educational content around like how do we tell people what cheese is to eat, what to pair, what to, you know, do all, do all this sort of stuff. Like, I, I think that idea of like the store within the store is so brilliant because it positions you as this place where it's like, Hey, this is where I want to go. And if you're interested in cheese, that's where you're going to go in the store. Yeah. And so many stores have horrible selection. So, Oh, look at this. This is a great place that I can go. Um, yeah. Did you, did, how are you thinking about all of that stuff? Well, cheese is highly experiential, and I think that's what brought us to as well to do the store within the store because so it was completely under under leveraged into whether supermarkets or other things like that, and that was a bit the barrier as well to entry. People didn't have tasting, didn't have like um, uh, any trial uh, size or anything like that. So uh, we started using different type of tools which were not part of the category, which is you know it was managed by farmers in different places, great cheese, but no marketers. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you know the the, the 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 store was one part, and then we started obviously linking the store with events. So we did one, and I think you can find it still on YouTube, which we got us into Trend Hunter, one of the top fifteen trends in experiential marketing that we did with this kind of uh, event into um, a Grand Central Station in New York, mm -hmm. in which we recreated to create a, again excitement, and it was in the same time we had the store in uh, in. Um, in uh, in New York, uh, we got people. We created like a museum, and so we took all the paintings and uh, things that were you know kind of from the 1700, whatever that had food and wine in it, mm -hmm. and put the real painting kind of, and then a three dimensional version of it with our cheese into it, so people could go and uh, oh, basically so experience. Cool. So we got a lot, and then at the same side there was a sculpture that was doing like a sculpture made out of cheese. So create a whole this kind of attention and relevance to uh, to to the cheese and link it back to our social media. People could go out there, take pictures, tag it. And so that created as well. One thing is like how you connected as well, the whole 
online world to the real world, which is important because cheese, you have to smell it, you have to mm -hmm. taste it, you have to pair it. And so that was one part of the strategy, which was more than education, was as well more and, you know, kind of playing on the indulgence and and, and fun of it. Uh, and then obviously we had as well, part of education was as well mostly inside the company. So try to get people there were our share of voice within the company was very smaller compared to Milk, which is a big mover in terms mm -hmm. of volume. So we created as well a kind of internal marketing program to create much more excitement between all the key accounts and everybody that was globally to get much more of the fair share of focus on our business. And by doing that, we created a training that people got, came and tasted the different cheese with wine. So they became like, we played on the passion, mm -hmm. on the fact that, yeah, milk maybe makes your, you know, your, your goals and everything better, but actually our business is much more fun. You make, you know, still a lot of margin in terms of financial, but as well, you get to play and, and speak about things that are much more fun. And then obviously the advertising, everything was focused as well on this creative base part to teach consumers as well that, you know, there was a type of different flavors and uh, cheese was exciting. And we kind of create new ones, which was not necessarily just uh, the traditional one, but played on different type of uh, things that were unique in the market. And then uh, obviously packaging, and form was started playing a much more role for us yeah. as well because education again is more like how do I like your point before you you were excited about those little pieces and so how did we get people to try more in different mm -hmm. ways so we started working and I think when they launched it uh, recently obviously after I left in Sweden this puffs so using a technology I think you have it in moon cheese or something like that in, yeah. in Starbucks so taking real cheese yeah. and using a, a kind of um uh, technique to make it look like a make it like a snack. Yep. Uh, so it's dry it as you know life shelf life is much longer, everything else kind of, but it's still hundred percent the cheese. Uh, and so people could snack on it, taste it, but in a completely different way. So we started working on all those kind of aspects to get in more into the house, get the frequency uh, higher. Well, I mean, I think I think it's such a difficult challenge to look at something like brie. You have this region called brie that makes this cheese called brie yeah. and then you have to compete with that region to create this type of cheese that pe cheese that people know as brie so then you have to look at you know how do you name camembert how do you like rename these things to give them a brand meaning right to you know semi-hard semi-soft soft like all these things i think it's just an interesting uh it's such an interesting market because there's so many different varieties that these names have meaning that are lost you yeah. know like the average consumer couldn't point out brie on a map okay uh, well, yeah no absolutely and and they don't they don't know that it's you know a place in france um but they do know that it's delicious and that it yeah. comes in you know a wheel and the screamy is a bit more kind of mild to, compared to a camembert or something like that yeah um, but it, 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 of all the markets and brands I've worked, whether it is, you know, on consulting technology, whatever, I think the cheese actually has been the most uh, uh, intriguing, complicated complex. Complex because of marketing, just use what you said. We, uh, we calculated there was about two, three thousand type of cheese uh, we're competing against. Wow. Uh, region, mini regions, you know, you know, then even Nielsen, all those other kind of, uh, 
marketing, you know, kind of information, don't know sometimes how to categorize. How do you get a premium cheese, then a semi-hard, hard yellow, uh, mole cheese, uh, which is not very exciting names, but the, the market is extremely complex. So, so from a marketing perspective, it's a big challenge. But then you have as well the whole value chain that is very complicated because it's uh, a cheese is something you, I never thought about as a consumer, but it's alive. Yeah. It keeps on changing. So whatever the cheese, the experience is never consistent necessarily. Because you can eat uh, gorgonzola today and then the same cheese, the same brand, whatever, you know, in a week is going to be slightly different. Those are things that you have to control. Obviously, there is a lot of sensitivities. You can't produce uh, yellow cheese in a, in a, in a dairy where produce uh, blue cheese because of the mold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get into all those complications. I mean, I remember we had about 500 SKUs to manage. Wow. So the whole financial value chain as well is very complicated. But- in order to go there, and I think I was actually, I got fascinated when one of your podcasts, I went someone, I don't remember the name, and I'm sorry, that was talking about quantitative data analysis mm-hmm. and, and mining into data. Behind that, I think we we got to a point, I think, and knowing some people that went into similar market, we were maybe the most sophisticated in terms of understanding the consumer. We interviewed consumers uh, in uh, four different countries, and then out of that, we went into a whole quantitative study. We knew exactly what consumers define as specialty cheese versus non-specialty cheese in every single wow. key market for us. We knew exactly when they were eating, what, what with what they were eating, which occasion were interesting, which need states were, you know, kind of uh, covered, which consumers with what, where were they shop. And so all this kind of work helped us as well be, you know, drive to whether the store or other things to understand as well, much better the consumer than anybody else. Well, and I think now we have, especially younger consumers now have, you know, people are saying like, they're not brand loyal. It's like, no, they're just not brand loyal to like craft, for example, they're brand loyal to smaller things. And the story of the brand is part of the thing that, that like people appreciate. Right. So, you know, your story about being able to have this person who gave like, you know, a Danish twist to all of these other regions, I think is really interesting. Um, did you, and with so much variety, there's a lot of business value. There's like you said, 500 SKUs, that's crazy. It's a lot of complexity, um, but it's also potentially a very advantageous position because you have, you know, such a, um, you have people like you who are working on the problem. Did you ever think about doing a like cheese of the month club or, or did you have one of those or something? Because I, I always kind of feel like those type of, you know, the subscription models, which are obviously very profitable, but also, um, I think a lot of people, you know, who love cheese, love the variety. They love the different types of, you know, sure. hey, this this you know month I want to try like a couple different things. Um, I'm just curious if you ever if you ever looked at. It's a good point. We didn't do actually. Uh, it was not necessarily cheese of the month, but we used some cheeses in uh, some kind of seasonal. Oh yeah, I, I would say almost promotional aspects. And then we add another part, which is not exactly uh, this, but actually was very exciting. And I think it's, uh, it's still in, uh, in moving. Um, uh, it was, we worked as well with uh, top chefs in, uh, you know, oh, I don't yeah. know, there was Nordic Kitchen became a kind of big thing in, in the past uh, years, uh, the top Michelin star, whatever. So we were lucky to be, in a way, uh, Denmark was not completely a place that was not associated with food. So we had, um, what's his name? Um, 
forgot the name, but this uh, very Norma in uh, Copenhagen, which was voted the best restaurants in the world, whatever. Oh, yeah. And I created a whole kind of followers into that space. So we worked a lot with some of the top chefs upcoming into this space. We had an incredible guy who was a super creative in order to uh, do something that others didn't do. So develop cheese uh, customized cheese for those restaurants. So based on the chef being almost giving you a brief and say, you know, I need this re- this ch- uh, cheese that does this and that and that, this kind of profile, talking to someone that would obviously would speak his language. And then this guy came out, was really fascinating. He went on and created all those. Some of them didn't make it to anything, but like he was uh, he was telling us like he was taking this cheese aging in the wind in Iceland and or in the Faroe Islands, which was where we had this uh, mm-hmm. Danish and or try things with, uh, you know, where they're Cows ate a different type of grass and then work with those uh, top Michelin star uh, restaurant to make those customized cheese unique. And then after a period, obviously, those cheese from exclusivity, they will go and become cheeses into a premium line that we had in, mm-hmm. in certain markets, whatever. So we're trying to expand as well this concept of working with chefs globally to say how, you know, cheese has always been obviously something organic grown in, you know, farmers in the mountains, whatever was a traditional thing. But what about if you go the other way around and you say the chef, the top chefs, whether it's in Germany, whatever, they have different type of way of cooking, they brief us and we develop cheese. They're customized for, they're made uniquely for them based on certain characteristics. You see this now on menus that I, I feel like I never saw this when I was younger, like the... You know, you, you used to have like the blue cheeseburger, right. but you didn't have like the like cowgirl creamery, uh, you know, blue cheeseburger. Like yeah. they're putting the brand of the cheese or of the, um, you know, you always saw this with like Angus meats and things like that, putting the actual brand of the cheese to give credibility to the item on the menu. Taking that a step yeah. further with the with having the chefs actually be a part of the creation process is fascinating. I like that you actually you you you, you mentioned the the burger because that was one of the things innovation as well talking about innovation and education of consumers with it actually around the world. We discovered again consumer research and insights and understanding. Uh, we figure out that basically, to your point, blue uh, blue cheese became like a factor in a lot of uh, premium burgers. People mm-hmm. started becoming exciting, and so we took a cheese that we, it was like when I when I look at it the first time, we had this blue cheese, Danish blue cheese, which is unique. It's like a DOP, whatever you can uh, make. It's just made in Denmark, and we were the main producer, but was super boring. It was sold <laughs> in slices in in supermarkets, and people had no clue what was that. It was sold it was, in slices, no way. It slices, pre-slice, it's nice. Yeah. Uh, it's sold as well in different formats, but. The slices but there was nothing written except danish blue and you know mm-hmm. people would have no way to know that again is a very producer uh, mentality yeah uh and so we look you know what is the occasion actually we can use without revolutionizing anything without having r&d involved in anything like that you can actually take those slices and based on the consumer inside rebrand it completely and we rebranded it as burger blue oh that's so, so good. it became uh, a seasonal a bit like you're saying on the season of uh, burger or grilling whatever so you can make with super premium cheese already sliced prepared you can put in a burger at home you know when you grill and everything like that that allowed us to create another occasion so again you know like consumer market you you learn about a lot about okay how do you uh, address need states and occasion and then we got it on the on this thing but the other side benefits is that allowed us especially in the US to start being exposed to consumers in very different ways because suddenly we were not anymore into 
the uh, little cheese gourmet, I don't know how you call it, daily type of little thing, which is like a, a little cage there in a, in a supermarket, suddenly we were featured in the meat section. Yeah. Which is much more in terms God, of uh, eyeballs and everything. So we started developing then a whole line of uh, sometimes innovation can happen, you know, based on consumer inside that you realize and that doesn't necessarily need a big technological innovation or new formulation of the world. It's sometimes it's just a matter of repackaging and understanding your consumer. Yeah, it's a brilliant insight. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the like tenets of marketing is be where your competitors aren't, yeah. right? If all of your competitors are in the cheese aisle and you can be in the burger aisle, then you're positioned in Absolutely. a much in a much more dynamic way. Um, that I love that that rename to to Burger Blue. I now I'm, I'm gonna have to. Hit up uh, Chad, fire up the grill here at Mission HQ. <laughs> um, so when you were like rebranding stuff like that, yeah. and thinking of the utility of the 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 consumer, which I, I think is brilliant, I love how you said you didn't have to go to R and D. You didn't have to consult any part of the business other than just hey, this is just packaging. Like yeah. it's just it's purely a marketing brand play. Um, how did you market that? Were you buying ads? Like, were you paying for, uh, you know, digital ads? Were you doing buying billboards? Were you, how are you marketing that stuff? That was actually done by the local market. And by the way, to be fair as well, the, the idea as well came from consumers as well, but someone in the US, because the US was a major market where we mm-hmm. actually started this innovation, which come again to where you decentralize and where you get your consumer side in a global organization. That was really originated in the US, which was the biggest burger market. So it was very, obviously the business was not that big, so we didn't go into, except now I think into advertising, uh, you know, more kind of print or TV or whatever. Uh, So it was very much digital, you know, a lot of in-store activities, because again, I mean, as local, for example, uh, we we worked as well with you know the grilling um, uh, com- not the grilling company how you call it the 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 ones that make the grills um, mm-hmm. oh yeah like uh, Weber yeah or whatever. so there was uh, you know a lot of experiential marketing we did a tour with a chef uh, at the time again U S U S based we uh, actually had I don't know if they still have it right now but we had a very solid uh, uh, agreement with Mike si- uh, Michael Simon the chef. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was like spokesperson for uh, for us for Costello, and he as well showed up at our store in New York. And then actually we had him as well. One of the activities we did globally was to partner with uh, at the time Weinstein for a movie with Bradley Cooper, which was the chef. Oh, uh, yeah. was the chef was burned. Yeah, that is great. I love. So it seems like one of the new things that we we touched on a little bit earlier was about packaging, but taking. Um, the wheel and breaking the wheel. It's like Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, taking the wheel of cheese and and making it into just a smaller slice. It seems like the slices have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. I'd imagine that that, I mean, I don't buy, I don't buy a wheel hardly ever unless I'm going to like a, a party or something like that. <laughs> you just buy the slice. I'd imagine that those, that position and then the pre-slice having, um, Big slices, that was a big thing. I remember when that came out and it's yeah. like, oh, now these for the, like, you know, or thicker slices or things like that. Did you, was that like a conscious decision to, based off of consumer insights? To go, sorry, to- uh, It's like from like sell the wheel versus, yeah. uh, you know, start packaging, you know, individual like sections of the wheel instead of the larger one. Well, the section of the wheel sometimes is a more business that goes into uh, into the the retailer. 
So they have the daily section, oh. and they would uh, they would get a different type of package from us, almost B two B, if you will. Oh, okay. And they cut, and then then we give you know they they kind of brand it in a different way. So it's a pre cut, and a wrap around in front of you in the daily, and sometimes normally it's, a, it's it's considered higher quality for some reason. And then you have the pre package that is more like a package good thing, same cheese in a different section that is sliced or you know kind of in a little package as you saw with a cream cheese or whatever. You know, exactly like you have a Coke or anything like that. Hmm. Um, Fascinating. So it's like, it, it, it depends. Um, I would say in a lot of markets, the daily part, I remember mostly in Europe, which was uh, which was popular a long time ago, has been kind of in the a constant decline, uh, which is, I mean, the retailer, you know, it's, it's costly. You know, they have to put someone there to cut all those kind of things. Um, I think Whole Foods has like almost a consultant there. Yeah. They they kind of pick up, but there's this guy. Oh, no, I they think do, they yeah. even an ad, obviously, on the fact that the guy is a specialist on oh, cheese. Yeah. yeah. And it's great. I mean, and their their selection. I mean, it is it is a differentiator if you're thinking about going from, you know, to Safeway versus Whole Foods or whatever it is. Like yeah. it's an absolute differentiator because the the cheese selection is just so good. Yeah. Um but you think about it and you're like, there's so few, I mean, there's like, you know, here in, in the East Bay, I'm sure all of our international listeners and just listeners all over, like, it, I, places to buy cheese in Oakland is not that interesting. But I think it's an interesting look at the, at like the ecosystem of something like this, you know, like there's a cheese shop and uh, there's a small cheese shop in Oakland. Uh, there's a cheese shop in San Francisco. But beyond that, it's like people are buying it from their local supermarket, wherever yeah. that is. And for a place that has, you know, to be able to, to differentiate differentiate yourself in any way at a supermarket is is a huge challenge for any of these consumer yep. goods. And cheese is a, is a highly experiential product. It does it's bears because of the cost. I mean, I remember when you go to Whole Foods, a little piece of cheese, which Italian cheese, it costs like for twenty dollars. Yeah, no, <laughs> which is uh, which is great. And obviously, people are more careful when they when they go there if they don't know what they're talking about because a lot of the cheese is not clear what it is. However. From a marketeer perspective, if you would have the resources or the channels to convey that and it fits into your brand strategy, cheese is a nice part because it has a lot of history. Mm -hmm. We bought a company, a small company in Germany in the mountains, and that was fascinating. So we could create a whole history because they had this uh, cheese made out of milk of those cows that were in uh, uh, over 5,000 feet or whatever, wow. because there's special grass. Yeah. And they were treated very well by the by the farmer. I was teasing, like uh, I said, that maybe they're even going skiing in winter, those, uh, those cows, I don't know. It sounded like, you know, they were like pampered and uh, yeah. know, they had like all this kind of beautiful life in the mountains and therefore, but the whole story that you could create out of that from the, how it became like that, you know, the, the story how cheese became so important in the mountains for pe peasants and people in, in that kind of environment to high was produced. So from a marketeer standpoint, if you like, you know, storytelling, whatever, cheese is an incredible kind of uh, potential content. And that's why we looked as well at outlets to, you know, whether it's the store, whether it is the event or whatever, our store to get an outlet to the experience and the story, which because in the supermarket, both of them were not obviously leveraged. I mean, think about the California ad campaign that happy, uh, happy cows from come from California. I mean, just think about that ad campaign that ran, I mean, that ran for, that had to run for 10 years. I mean, it might still be running and it was all about, you know, milk and cheese and that, and, and the and dairy, but putting the cows first, right? Yeah. They're happy cows. Happy cows make oh, yeah. <laughs> great cheese, right? Like it's, it's an absolutely silly thing absolutely. when you, when you kind of say it out loud, but you're like, that's super memorable campaign. Yeah. Um, and it reminds you to go to the store, uh, to, to get some cheese potentially.
I could keep going on cheats. Fascinating stuff. So you are running your own consultancy called Godai Strategy. Why Godai? Yeah, Godai is an, you know, like a good marketer. Obviously, I was trying to find a name or a positioning that would reflect certain things that I really actually like and uh, which I'm passionate about. And I was doing, I, mean, I was well a big fan of uh, biomimicry, which was like, yeah. uh, you know, from my old times or, you know, when, when I was in school, I don't want to go back into days, but I was fascinated about phys- if my If it was not a marketing, I wanted to be a physicist or something like that. So I was yeah. curiosity. But anyway, going back into biomimicry being one of the interesting parts of studying, you know, animals, plants and whatever, and understanding from evolution what we can uh, gather in our in our world. I mean, from engineering to everything. I'm, I'm totally with you, by the way. I love biomimicry. Oh, yeah? We, yeah, we were working on a... Um, I wanted to do a huge, uh, like I wanted to do a podcast series. Anyone listening who wants to pay for this, let me know. Um, I wanted to do a series on like a podcast series on biomimicry. Because I just think it's so, I think it's just so fascinating. Like it's all these, the innovations that happen from, you know, gecko feet to Velcro to, you know, all these different things. It's just fascinating. So anyways, I'm totally in on the biomimicry. I mean, one part of it, actually, I'm working maybe with a a biomimic priest or whatever. I don't know how you call it. Uh, And we're working on something that is not necessarily what people think, you know, Velcro, like you said it, you know, whether it's a spider web, all those, those are the most popular. But there are a lot of other world of things that apply, including organization. So looking how ants and that kind of what we call uh, uh, superorganism are organized and how mm-hmm. do you transfer that into innovation processes or way a company organize itself uh, from the hierarchical model, which is in crisis or whatever. So that's a completely different type of thing. But coming back to goat high, uh, I looked at, uh, I was fascinated by the fact that goats, if you look at them, they have this kind of weird eyes. They yeah. have like almost horizontal. And part of it is because they have the system that can, they can see, I wouldn't say 30, 360 degrees, but almost. So they have the a view that is extended almost like a IMAX for us, you yeah. know? And, yeah, it's um, like widescreen. Their eyes are basically, it's like a, a horizontal box. Right. Um, and, and they can, yeah, they, it allows it looks fascinating. And, and the way they see, and a part of it is because, uh, well, part of it is the, the way it is like this is because it allows them to see predators coming from mm-hmm. behind or below. I think there's a whole point of how even how they move their head or their, their eyes, the, 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 the field of view. And I thought that's a great metaphor. Uh, first of all, it obviously, it potentially got our attention. Like you say, what, what the heck, what is this guy mm-hmm. doing? Or, you know, go die Italian go, with a go die company in Bay Area. Yeah, it's, totally. it's a weird combination, isn't it? Uh, but as a good marketer, you have to find something that kind of uh, gain, gain, first of all, awareness, if you will. And then uh, it was a metaphor of what really I like in different dimensions. First of all, I think I see uh, GoTai because it's extended view. And I think a lot of companies or what I experience in innovation sometimes, it's like a lot of uh, companies are, are very focused on a, what we call a frame of reference, whatever, which is very close to them. They're close competitors. So if I'm Procter, I'm we're fighting against the detergents of Colgate or whatever. And a lot of time, disruption and destroyment of some categories or brand happens from completely different categories. So how do you extend the view? How do you get into consumer search, into strategy thinking that says your competitor is not exactly what you normally see in front of you? and you have almost every day. Sometime the biggest disruption in your company, you know, iPhone being one of the things that this, you know, uh, if you think about cell phones and everything, comes from a completely different angle of another industry, another category, which comes in and revolutionize yours if you don't see that coming. Uh, I see, so that was one of them. The other metaphor is coming back to international is how, how do you broaden your view and understand much better global markets? Uh, so how do you see, it's all about, you know, how you extend your vision, whether it is 
the way you think about innovation and competition where it comes and, your, and define your market, but as well how you broaden your view in terms of how you look at market search or as well how you look at international markets. So I found that a perfect metaphor of what I learned in my career, but as well what I'm passionate about. And that's why I came out. And on top of that, there's a name that uh, raised the question. So why, the, you know, why did you come out? It must, I didn't want to go with something, you know, strategy, something, so yeah, and so, yeah. whatever, no. I like it. No, and I think it's just a fascinating way of, pardon the pun here, looking at things. Because I think a lot of times, like you said, people aren't looking at their competitors in the right way. They aren't looking at marketing the right way. They aren't looking at, you know, their, their consumers the right way, you know, back to the cheese. It's like cheese for, you know, a hundred years, a thousand years was made by, was packaged because that's how it's easy to package, not how it's easy to eat. Um, and if you're not kind of seeing, uh, close to 360 degrees, um, you might miss that stuff. Yeah, and to your point of cheese, actually, is a is a good one. Sometimes you can look in a market like cheese, which has a very strong barrier to entry, or people have very low frequency and mm-hmm. very, uh, let's say, limited incidents in, in some markets. To say, do I look at for growing my business and to make you know uh, make it a big business? Do I look at the other cheese maker as a point of reference? And so I work on sharing a small, little, tiny, little pizza, if you will, or slice or cake, or do I extend and say, you know what? My competitor is not the other cheese. Oh, well, yeah, it may be, but actually, what I'm more targeting is the biscuits, the chips, the other things that are out there, which are much more. They're bringing much more occasions and volume or revenue. Uh, you know, the fact of you know when we were talking about before about the pops, the cheese pops, that was not just the fact of you extending to the snack market, big market. That's a nice inroad into making something much more frequent and gain volume as opposed to just target the other brief from France uh, and enhance the consumer experience for different reasons. But as well, it allows you to be in a completely different price point. So you you suddenly you're comparing yourself to a completely different price per quantity as opposed to the cheese. So that makes uh, revenue, profit, everything different. And so how do you look at the you know? And that's where you look at. Yeah, I think. Um... I think people a lot of times, like you said, will compare their product to their competitors instead of, you know, comparing it to the thing that they should be comparing it to. Uh, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, always says, he's like, we're not competing with other media, we're competing with sleep. Uh, It's like, you know, people stop watching Netflix when they go to sleep. And, uh, you know, I think he's, there's a little tongue in cheek there, but I think he's also 100% serious with that. you know, we probably all need a lot more sleep. Actually, we all definitely need a lot more sleep. But I think that it's it's a great point of like, we need to, you know, you, you we talk a lot on the show about you want to fight where you can win, right. uh, you know, only fight where you can win. And it's like to double tap the idea of like putting the cheese next to the meat puts you in a way more advantageous Absolutely. you know, position. Um, it's like putting ping pong balls uh, next to uh, red solo cups because people play beer pong, right? It's like yeah, yeah. that same sort of thing. It's like put those two things together. One of those uh, in association, if you have solo cups in one place and ping pong balls in another, people aren't going to buy them because they don't remember that they want to play yeah. beer pong someday. But when you put them together on the shelf, uh, that makes magic in yeah. the person's mind and they make the purchase decision. How should CMOs think about changing to international markets? I think you know it's like uh, the CMO. I think has to be um, 
has to realize that uh, the, the, uh, when you when you are CMO of a global company, I think that's uh, you know whether it's the smallest, big ones, to understand how you tap the network into the local into the local market, local resources, and be very sensitive as well. It becomes almost like you're more into human resources and understanding uh, how to tap into talent and understand what's the definition of talent in the different markets from yours. Because a resume from a German guy or Dutch, whatever, will be different from an American one. And how so how you tap that and how you leverage as a network your organization as opposed to become a center of creative branding and strategy kind of uh, uh, deployment and, 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 and development uh, in a big headquarters type of setting. Because I think that's the mistake a lot of, I think, a lot of companies make. And, you know, obviously CMO on a global scale, it becomes where you are based become the center of action and strategy and so on. And sometimes it becomes like, uh, you know, you kind of lose completely the, uh, the, the the value of the resources that you have locally and, and think about it more as a distributed network, if you will, as opposed to a central kind of uh, system. I mean, that's at least where I've seen the most success into, uh, into marketing, into global marketing. Do you think, what are some mistakes that you've seen some CMOs make when pivoting to international markets? Well, part of it is that, you know, as I said, it's like you you create, you you tend to have this ideal, which sometimes is sexy as well for a CEO, someone, the, the, the big global brand. So how do I develop this big global yeah. brand? And you start doing this massive research and consumer stuff and whatever and strategy development, you kind of have this quarter full of uh, marketeers, brilliant people. But then you work, whether it's in the US or you're in, in, in other places, when you start thinking about the global brand from the start, like we, we, we started at the beginning of the conversation, you work on a theoretical abstract consumer and you start to compromise a lot with a lot of different people and inputs. Yeah, you ask the German, you ask the French, you ask the whomever it is in the global market you're interested in. But then all becomes like a little Frankenstein in the brain. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of disasters or projects that never ends in that kind of a space. And so sometimes it's like, do you want to have that or you prefer to actually have your best resources, your best way of working tapping into the resources locally and maybe using just the global resources as coaching or, uh, you know, kind of sometimes to fill some gaps. Mm -hmm. And that's at least I work with uh, with my team in, in, in Ala, but as well when I was on two, three countries type of business or in strategy to say, you know, the, the, the best talent has to be local and has to be as well uh, the one that's integrated, more integrated with you. And sometimes it's uh, the best idea, the best things actually tap into a, one market and then test them or check, you know, whether the same segment, the same opportunity actually exists in other markets, as opposed to try desperately to develop that kind of big global brand centrally. It kind of reminds me of like the idea of the Burger Blue, right? It's like if you were going to launch the Burger Blue in, I don't know, wherever, in, in Spain or something like that, where they don't eat hamburgers, like, yeah. not going to be a great idea. Yeah, we want it to be a global brand, but it's like they don't eat cheese in that, in that market the way, and you need to trust the people on the ground. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it's like the, the Burger Blue started in the U.S. because of the, but then we started finding segments and interest as well in other markets. Yeah. So it started becoming more, it was not a global brand, but a global type of initiative, if you will. Uh, and then sometimes we we realized that the packaging, a lot of things were actually consistent, uh, but sometimes we had to change cheese. Uh, so sometimes, you know, whatever happened in a market and you think it's actually very local, sometimes actually can find a way to travel unexpectedly. Yeah, the uh, use case could be the exact same. The, yeah. the packaging, the product, all that sort of stuff might yeah. be different. Awesome. All right. Let's get into lightning round. Sure. Fast and easy questions. 
just like fast and easy marketing with Pardot. You can go to pardot.com slash podcast and learn more about B2B marketing on the world's number one CRM. Fast and easy questions. Are you ready? Sure. <clears throat> number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Fun. That's a, uh, I, I don't know if I use the phone for fun necessarily. What I used to use time, I think I, I like when I'm, because I use it in the car sometime, I like to tune in into whether it's a Fubo TV or whatever to oh, listen, yeah. not, not obviously to watch, but it becomes like a radio, enhanced radio, if you will. Yeah. Oh, I love Waze, but I would not say fun, the more utility, you know, kind of use. Favorite cheese? Yeah. Favorite cheese is the creamy white from uh, from uh, the, from Costello. I'm going to have to pick that up today. Yeah, you'll love it. Favorite vacation spot? Uh, I think it's like music depends on the, what I want to mood. It's a difficult question. I don't, okay. It's not that I want to. I've never been to Italy. Yeah. Where should I go in Italy? Uh, if you like the beach, I will go Sardinia. Okay. If you like the mountains, I would like to Dolomites or things like that. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, the Alps, obviously, but Dolomites is really spectacular. And But I loved, you know, I had some of the best time in New Zealand. Mm. When there, I think it's a fabulous country, a, a, amazing people, really nice. Everybody that I met, even the policeman that gave me a fine was actually a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't be upset about What'd it. What did you get a fine for? Huh? I was going too fast as a yeah. good Italian, but he gave me a fine, but he was so friendly that I, I felt almost bad. I wanted to pay, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Uh, books, I think the last one I read that was very interesting. I like Milan Kundera. Uh, is a book and uh, you say it's like it's um, uh, bearable likeness of being so mm. it's more the offer but I think if you are market is interesting or if you because he, the, the offer has a way of telling a story from different perspectives so you always change in the chapters like you and me so he sees the perspective of, uh, I, the way I look at you I get upset for something whatever and then it completely goes into your mind and another one if, to make an example in this situation and then take it from that perspective. And I think when you are, I think a businessman or marketing, whatever, that actually, it has a, is, is, is a great uh, writer, is a great book, but as well, it helps you to think as well, what is the, you know, try to think yourself in other people's shoes, whether you're managing them or whatever. And that's an incredible way of telling a story the way he does it. What do you do for fun? I play soccer on Saturday and Sunday morning with nice. a group, so it's a great workout. I mean, soccer, I mean, it would be football, I would call it, but uh, we understand, so I like that. Running, a lot of fun, the sun normally in California, or I like sometimes to hike, take the dog to long hike in, the, in those beautiful parks here around here. What is your best advice for a first-time CMO? Oh, that's, uh, that's a good question. I think it's... Uh, I would take my time. I mean, it's counter to all the other advice. Sometimes there's a hundred days, the ninety days. Yeah. You know, you have to achieve. But I learned one of my best bosses in uh, in my career was uh, was a Spanish guy in, in in Germany. And I remember for the first actually five months, he didn't do almost anything. Uh, it was very listening. You know, obviously the business was moving, but no action. And I think part of it was he really took the time to understand, you know, properly the the way the people, the culture, the challenge were. And then he started moving. And I think sometimes we are pushed, you know, by the culture as well, you know, the, the tenure of a CMO or whatever or in any business to act immediately because you have to show off, you know, the fact that you have to have a, a quick win, whatever. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that kind of uh, eagerness and whatever may make you make mistakes. So sometimes, you know, the best is, you know, as well to take your time to understand because a lot of those jobs, organization and situation are kind of challenging and complex. 
Um, so that's that's what I would do. Maybe counter, you know, maybe not take a year, but <laughs> take some time. What are you most excited about for the future of marketing? I'm excited about the the, the uh, two things. One, the macro trend that are happening right now. So if you look at the innovation and everything like what we talked about, the, everything that has to do now with environment and with uh, health, fruit, health in the sense of uh, good food, you see a lot of innovation happening. I can see more and more happening. I think we maybe scratch the surface when it comes as well to certain areas and uh, innovation, sustainability and so on. I'm, I'm waiting for the day in which a PNG or a Colgate in detergent will be challenged, not by another detergent with another pod or whatever, but by maybe the washing machine or the Whirlpool inventing a technology that can use physics or something to wash without. Yeah, totally. So things that come completely from an angle that you cannot see and and belong to this kind of movement, you know, like a bit what's happening now with the Impossible Burger in, in mm-hmm. food and so on. Um, so that was uh, that's exciting, uh, and then the other thing I would—that's uh, not an exciting, but it's a wish. I think there's a role for marketeers, consultants, whatever, to work more on the nonprofit good uh, mm. part. Whether it's a good, you know, whether it's a for-profit, you know, food or whatever, change the way nutrition is done or sustainability. So work in this type of businesses, but as well, you know, nonprofit because I think we are responsible. So marketeer marketing has been extremely successful. And Fortress has been very successful in, you know, developing some of the problems we have today mm-hmm. when it comes to food or whatever, you know, obesity. I was the like, first ones to to bring it up when uh, when we were at Coke and other things like that. So how can marketing become a, a more a force for good, actually, uh, in the future? That's what I will be looking for, because I think there's a lot of power demonstrated. Love it. Francesco, this has been awesome. Thanks so much Thank for you. coming. This has been uh, great. And we will uh, talk to you soon. And Check out some cheeses. Sure. <laughs> In the meantime, <laughs> take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster 
and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.